Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Thanks so much for gathering here uh, this morning, and thank you for bringing, <clears throat> excuse me, thank you for bringing the church into this sanctuary this morning. For those of you who have gathered for Crosspoint at home, thanks for inviting us into your living room, dining room, wherever you happen to be tuning in from. Uh, friends, we're going to dive into our series. Uh, we're going to be in week eight of this series, looking at the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. Uh, but before doing that, let me read these words out of Isaiah chapter two gives us a vision of the day that we long for, the day that not only we long for here, but what our world longs for, what our world needs. And Isaiah speaks of this day and it says, "'Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, "'to the house of the God of Jacob, "'that he may, that he may teach us his ways "'and that we may walk in his paths. "'For out of Zion shall go the law "'and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem.'" And then we get this, word, this proclamation, this promise uh, in verse four. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That there's a day that we've been created for where we will all gather and we will worship the Lord and God will gather his people. And one day he's going to turn what are weapons of war and they will be remade into things that can bring about cultivation and, and flourishing. And given all that we've been hearing in the news over the last 48 hours or so in Israel, um, I know there's lots of things going on in the, the rest of the world. And in some ways it always feels like, which thing do we pick? But man, just knowing and reading about this and some of the, the images that we're seeing, I just I just want to take a moment at the front end of this just to, to pray, to ask God's peace uh, to come, uh, knowing that he has promised that one day this is going to be the reality. Um, and we are in this season. We just ache. It's why Paul would say like all of creation is like groaning in the pains of childbirth. Like there's this new life that's to come, but there is this pain that is felt right now. And so if you would bow your head with me and let, let's pray for a moment. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for these promises. We thank you for these words that you gave to your servant Isaiah that we could read on this particular morning knowing what's going on, God, around the world and in particular um, in the land of Israel, um, God. And so we pray for peace. Uh, we would pray, God, for reconciliation. We pray, God, that you would be at work God, we pray for those who have lost loved ones, those who have been taken from their, their families, those who are frantically running around trying to find their, their, their children, their spouses, uh, their brothers and sisters. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would bring comfort, that you would bring peace. Um, we thank you that you are the God who brings beauty out of the brokenness. And God, we confess, uh, we don't know how this is all going to resolve. Um, there are the things, God, that on the other side of the world feel overwhelming. And there are things that we've all brought in here this morning, God, that if we're honest, feel overwhelming and we don't know what to do with. But we thank you that you are a God that brings healing, that you have promised, God, that you are at work and that you, Jesus, are gonna come back one day and set everything right. So be with us now, God, be with your church around the world. Would you be raising up your church to bring healing and peace and be agents of reconciliation? We pray that you would do this for your glory and for the good and joy of your people. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, friends, uh, we are, as I said, we are in this series called Creation and Chaos. And man, we had a glorious uh, run for about two chapters, right? Um, where we got to see how the scriptures open up. Everything is 
as God intended it to be. There's flourishing, right? Like man and woman are in right relationship with God, their maker. They're in right relationship with the animals. Like Adam's just naming the animals. He's not being devoured by the animals, right? Um, they got plenty of food. They've got a lack of clothing. I mean, everything's just amazing, right? Um, all of those things are taking place. And then as we saw last week, Genesis 3 happens. And in Genesis 3, we hear of the rebellion. We hear of the lack of trust, the lack of contentment that God's people, and they reach for the fruit. Unless we think for a moment, like, ah, those crazy people, I can't believe that they did that. We do that. And we would have done that. And we continue to do that. And that story continues to, to play out. And so I want to look this morning at the back half of Genesis 3 and see like, what is now some of the fallout of that? How do these words, one of the things I love about the Bible, is it is a book of great hope? that speaks the promises of God. And it is also an incredibly honest book that gives us insight into like, why do you feel what you feel right now? I don't think there's anything in this world that's as honest as what the Bible is, that gives a clearest picture as it does about like what's broken, what's going on in our world and in our lives. And that's what the back half of Genesis 3 is gonna help us with. And so it will feel a bit like, oh my goodness, like this is weighty, all right? Is there any good news? And there is, but we have to wade through the difficulty, the honesty, so that we might have an appreciation for all the ways that God is at work and what it actually cost him to bring us back into right relationship. And so if you're able, I wanna invite you uh, to stand right now as I read Genesis chapter three, verses 14 to 24. There are Bibles in the pews. I would encourage you to grab one of those. You can also scan the QR code uh, that's there. That'll bring up a menu that says sermon notes and the text will be there. So Adam and Eve have sinned. God has moved toward them, all right? He's called out to them, where are you? And now we come to the point in the story where God is going to speak these words of judgment, these, these words of consequence, of curses, things that he's going to speak to the serpent, to the woman, and to the man. So hear God's word. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children and your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. Verse 20, and the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's word. You may be seated. 
This past Thursday, I was finishing up. I was actually working on some stuff for this sermon, um, and I was noticed the clock, and I was like, "It's time to head out to a community group." And so I was loading up my things. I was here at the the church office and got my bag together and uh, made my way. I was needing to make a right out of here. Turn down 436 to get to I-4 and to head on over to our community group that meets in the College Park area. So I plan to hop on I-4 and go west uh, down I-4. And, you know, as it's around like six o'clock, there's some traffic and you're navigating that. Um, and that would be normal, all right? And uh, as I got onto I-4, though, as I was merging on, I noticed that not just the normal signs that are like always the permanent messages, but one of those signs where they can change the messaging, right? They can tell you like, there's an accident ahead. You will be stuck here for the next seven hours or whatever, right? Like those sort of signs. And I looked up and I saw this particular message. And I was like, did I just, did I read that correctly? And I didn't really think anything of it, but then I went you know, a little bit further down the road and there was another one of those signs. And there it was again. And here it was what was posted on the, the sign. So if you thought I-4 was a little bit sketchy, a little unsafe, this just ramped it up to a whole new level because it said this, wrong way driver reported, use caution. <laughs> I was like, oh no, what is about to happen, right? Um, and so then it was like, very cautiously, like what in the world is going on, right? Um, wrong way driver reported. So apparently there was somebody who just thought, you know what, like, I like dodging traffic, right? I don't know what they were thinking, uh, but apparently they set off and decided to just drive against the flow of traffic. So everybody's heading westbound. They thought, I'll go east in the westbound lane, right? Um, now, thankfully, I never encountered that car. I actually never saw any wreckage. I did pass like another one of those signs and there was that message again, but to my knowledge, nothing ever happened. But like what popped into my head, which probably maybe popped into your head too, um, unless you're just a really kind, compassionate soul, it's just like, oh, that poor person, wonder what's going on. In my mind, I was like, who's the moron who did that, right? Like, how in the world did you do this? Like, what did you miss? Like, why do you have a license? Why, do you, why are you allowed to be driving, right? Like, those are the thoughts that are running through my mind because I'm not always the most kind, gentle driver out on the road, Right. And as these thoughts are going through my mind, there's one of the things, as I told you, I'd also been working on a sermon. Then I hopped in my car and then I went, you know, and saw that message. And the reality is here's what occurred to me. And hopefully this can occur to all of us as we dive into this further. It's like that bit of me that's like, why in the world would you do that? Why would you make that decision? Why would you go against the flow? Don't you know how dangerous that is? Don't you know the chaos that you're gonna cause? And then it hit me, I was like, and that's exactly what I do that God has set a particular way for things to flow, to work. There's a, there's a way the universe is bent, meant to, to move in a direction that's going. And Genesis 1 and 2 laid that out for us oh so beautifully. And then the message is, yeah, but now there's something that's wreaking havoc. And it's not just a problem of those people out there, like it's in my heart and it's in your heart. And the reality is we keep choosing, all right, to say, I'm gonna go and do my own thing. And when we do, it's that word, like there's a wrong way driver reported. Genesis 3 in many ways is saying, listen, you're on the wrong path. The trajectory, it leads to death and devastation and chaos. And you thought you were reaching for more life, but now life is beginning to unravel. And there's a lot of consequences for that. Cornelius Plantinga wrote a helpful book, this, uh, this theologian philosopher a number of years ago called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. 
And so if you're looking for an entire book unpacking the theology of sin, it's riveting. I'm not sure it's like, hey, gather around. It's a cheery book, right? But it is an honest book. And in it, he describes sin this way. It's not that he describes it. He's going to the scriptures and saying, what is it that we're up against? And not like up against as if it's detached from us, but like what's going on in my heart and in your heart? Like what's this, what's wrong with the world? And he says this, the Bible presents sin by way of major concepts, principally lawlessness and faithlessness expressed in an array of images. Sin is the missing of a target, a wandering from the path, a straying from the fold. Sin is a hard heart and a stiff neck. Sin is blindness and deafness. It is both the overstepping of a line and the failure to reach it, both transgression and shortcoming. Sin is a beast crouching at the door. In sin, people attack or evade or neglect their divine calling. These and other images suggest deviance. And even when it is familiar, sin is never normal. Sin is a disruption of created harmony, and hear this, and then resistance to divine restoration of that harmony. Above all, sin disrupts and resists the vital human relation to God. This is what Genesis 3 is unpacking for us. This is the honesty that we get to encounter, not to beat us down, not to leave us in a place of shame and condemnation, but in a spot where we would rightly see, oh, this is still the issues that I face. And this is what my neighbor faces and my coworkers and my friends and what all of us face here together. And as we see this hopefully more clearly, it will lead to a clear picture ultimately of like, what it costs God to actually bring us home, to bring us back into the family, back into his presence. But friends, to do that, we have to talk first and foremost about the consequences. We have to look at how he addresses the serpent, how he addresses God, addresses the woman and how he addresses the man. Um, And I will just tell you, like on the front end, it's disproportionate amount of time, even at the beginning, is about these things. Like, I think we have to feel the weightiness of it, not because we carry condemnation or shame, but it helps explain why things are the way that they are and then offers us hope of how God actually is at work. And so we're gonna look at verses 14 to 19, but then also 23 to 24. And as we get into this, notice how verse 14 starts. Again, I would encourage you, have a Bible out in front of you. You don't need my thoughts, opinions. I'm not saying, well, here's what I think is wrong with the world. Like we're just going to the Bible and saying, all right, instruct us. This word is living and active. We come under its authority. It's here to guide us. It's here to comfort us. It's here to instruct us, to mold us, to shape us more into the image and likeness of Jesus. And it begins by saying, the Lord God said. And so he's going to address the serpent, then the woman, then the man. But let's just take a moment to realize it is God's prerogative. This is his jurisdiction. He is the one who can rightly judge, right? God tells us that God is love. And we like, that's an amazing thing. We should embrace that, celebrate that as well. But God also is a God of justice. And God would cease to be a God of love if he didn't actually also judge, if he didn't actually call things out to what they are. Like those things are intertwined and linked together so beautifully in God's character. And so God is the one who is the rightful judge. It is his world that he's created, right? We have gone astray. We have missed the mark. We have transgressed all of these things. What was true of Adam and Eve is true of you and me. And yet, as we're gonna see, God, there's hope in this. But God is the one who actually can judge. Psalm 96 says it this way. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. 
Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Like there's promises here. There's ways that God is always at work, what he's going to do to renew all of this creation. But it says he will judge the peoples with equity. That there isn't anything in here that's unfair. In fact, there are things in here as we see as hard as they are. There are things where we're like, wow, but that like, God told us like there'd be death and yet he's gonna sustain life and he's gonna make a way for there ultimately to be more life. And he makes amazing promises in this, but let's not lose sight of like, he's the one that's holy and he calls these things out. Again, not to leave us in a place of condemnation or shame. No, he moved towards Adam and Eve in their shame. We're gonna see the ways that he works to, to rid them of their shame, the way he wants to rid you and I of our shame but we have to see how deep the problem goes. And so first he speaks to the serpent. Look at with me at verses 14 to 15. It says, because, so he said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock. All right, notice Eve and Adam are not themselves cursed, but the serpent himself is cursed. Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. That line, dust you shall eat. And there's a lot of speculation. I feel like I kind of grew up with a a notion in my head. I don't know if I just misinterpreted something that a teacher maybe had said, or maybe somebody did try and communicate this, that like, oh yeah, like, you know, snakes used to have legs. And then God said, no more legs for you. And like, then they started to crawl on their belly. Maybe, maybe you grew up with that. Maybe I'm just weird. I don't know. But anyway, um, this, I don't believe it's saying that. Sure. We could speculate about, about those things, but really what's going on here and what we should think of when we see a snake, God is saying, okay, every time you see a snake slithering along, just remember as this represents what's going on here is it's saying, well, this is, it's speaking of the enemy. It's speaking of the accuser. It's speaking of Satan, speaking of the devil, a lot of different language that we could use, a lot of different names, but this is the enemy of God who has somehow shown up and, you know, is like speaking through this, this snake, this, this serpent. And when we see a snake slithering on the ground, it's meant to just symbolize to us, hey, rather than something to fear, remember this is a vanquished foe. Dust you shall eat. And perhaps there's even implications, right? As the scriptures tell us that um, even Satan is like a roaring lion seeking one to devour and we come from the dust and, you know, he's eating dust. I mean, is he, is he hell bent, so to speak, right? Like on devouring us. Yeah, I think all those things are, are true. It's helpful to recognize those things. But dust you shall eat. More than anything, it's meant to communicate to us, all right, Satan is a vanquished foe. Jesus has dealt with Satan's sin and death. And we still feel the repercussions. There's still ways he's actively at work, but he is not ruling and reigning. So like this past week, I literally, was, I was walking back. I walked over to get uh, lunch at the Always Healthy Huey Magoo's uh, with Rusty. Um, and we were walking uh, back. Um, we're literally going past the chapel over there toward this building that we're in now. And, and there was our little friend, right? Um, and, uh, and I jumped and squealed and hid behind Rusty and asked him to save me, okay? Um, and so... Um, Right, like I, there's those moments. Um, I'm like, oh, cool. I'm studying about this snake, and then there was one. Um, but um, my response, honestly, should have been one more of like, "Ha ha, you're a vanquished foe!" Right, like that's what it's meant to symbolize to us. Do we see that? 
And then it speaks, look at verse 15. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We're gonna come back to the second part of that a little bit later this morning. But that enmity, there is animosity that exists between these two lines. There's going to be the line of the offspring, the seed of Satan, of the serpent, or what's going to come from the seed of this woman. There's gonna be ultimate salvation that's going to be found. As we even looked at her role as this azer, that Hebrew word a couple of weeks ago, like God is going to bring about redemption. And so there's this enmity, there's this off, between the offspring there. Jesus would speak these words though. I think this is reminiscent of what's going on in Genesis 3.15, as you see it up there. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters, Jesus said in Luke chapter 11. I don't think we like to go to these categories all the time, but the Bible is very clear. And it's out of love that the Bible and that Jesus himself speaks very, in a very sort of black and white way to say, listen, you're either with him and part of his people or you are with Satan. And that seems like extreme, right? We're like, wait, isn't there some like middle ground? But he's saying, no, you're either with me or you're against me. And so what we have here is these consequences and part of this cursing that that we see in Genesis 3.15 is there's gonna be this enmity. There's gonna be the work of Satan and the people that get caught up in that who live in rebellion to the God, the creator of the universe, or there's gonna be those that are following Jesus in his way. There's no middle ground. There's no neutral space. It's not like one foot in, one foot out. Like that doesn't exist. If you're like, well, I'm kind of hovering in between. For now, you are then with the enemy. You're not with Jesus. And that's not said to discourage us, to beat us down. That's meant to paint a picture like, this is how important this is. This is why these things matter. Now we'll come back to the back half of Genesis 3.15 in a little bit. But for now, let's look at his words into the woman. So he says that to the serpent. Then in verse 16, he says this, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. So there it is on the screen. You see, that's verse 16, the first part of it. We'll look at the second part in just a moment. There's consequences here. Now, as we talk about the woman in particular and and the man, I wanna say something that I want you to hear this, painting with a very broad brush, okay? Um, If you're like, yeah, but that's not always true. Like, I get that, all right? Like, I'm all for nuance. I'm all for those things. But I think one of the things that's interesting in this text and one of the things we need to pay attention to is that God in his kindness is reminding us, hey, there's gonna be propensities that for the women and for the men, different things that they might look to for their ultimate identity, trying to find this sense of satisfaction, okay? And it doesn't mean that the things the women care about that the men don't. And it doesn't mean that the things the men care about the the women don't. There is overlap and all that, but at a broad brush sort of level, it's interesting to sort of pay attention to like, why are these things spoken to the woman? Why are certain things spoken uh, to the men? Like what's going on there? Remembering all the while, friends, we have to see, God said, let us make man in our image. Male and female, he created them, created them to rule, created them to be these vice regents, to steward, to cultivate, to expand the garden of Eden and see it go out into all the world. Like there is this worth, value, dignity, this equality between man and woman. 
And yet there is a distinction as well that God says there is a man and there is a woman, like all of the, these things. And so what happens here is he speaks to the woman. Now, one of the things I think is helpful to pay attention to is it says, and I've highlighted it there, kind of that pinkish red color, right? I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing in pain you shall bring forth children. And then that same word for pain shows up when it speaks to the man about the toil that he's gonna experience as he's out like working in the field and seeking to grow crops and all of these things, okay? Scholars, much, much smarter than me, um, have pointed out that there are a couple very specific Hebrew words that if Moses, who's writing this, wanted to talk about the pain and the actual birthing of children, okay? which I've heard is painful, all right? And women, you can amen that at any point, right? Like that is a real thing, all right? But there were Hebrew words to really talk about that specifically. And when in this line, it says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, that's not the word that's being used here. In fact, the word that's being used here is this word, this eats a bone, all right? Which means emotional grief and anguish. It's like, well, why here is it, is it spoken of as just like pain in the childbirth part? But then that same word, it's a bone, is used for the man to describe his toil out in the field. And can't solve that right now, why I got translated the, these ways, but just hear this. It's meant to be a more encompassing term. It's meant actually to say there is emotional grief and anguish across the whole thing, all right? There is emotional grief and anguish oftentimes accompanied by seeking to have children, the conception of children. You think about how the rest of the book of Genesis plays out. What are we gonna see with some of the, the leaders that God raises up? We're gonna see the struggle for them to have children. Like conception is not a given, but there's emotional pain and anguish, right? Think about Abraham and Sarah, right? And that, that, that dynamic there, how she longed to have children. It's a reoccurring theme. This is explaining why things were the way that they were. So it means that emotional anguish and that pain regarding conception. And it also means about the actual giving birth to children, okay? But it also means the raising of children. Now in here, right? Like here's the reality. Like it's not meant to say it's all pain and anguish, right? There's incredible highs and things to celebrate and joys. But I think every woman that's in here that has had children, right? Would, would say like, yeah, there's emotional cost, there's agony, there, there's pain, right? In like conceiving children, in birthing children, in raising children, like the whole thing, right? And you can say amen to that if you want, right? Like that's a, that's a real thing. And so God is saying to us, like, hey, this is part of the fall. This never would have been the case, but there is this anguish. There is this emotional grief. There are things he's saying, like, it's not that the man doesn't care about any of these things. He should care about these things. But it also is a reminder that part of this struggle and part of what I think this is communicating is there can be a tendency to look to even the having of children, the raising of children as a source of having identity wrapped up in that. How am I doing in that? And I think fathers can feel that as well. It's not to say that they don't or that they shouldn't. But it's interesting that this is spoken of to the woman saying, oh, there's gonna be this agony. There's gonna be some of this pain. Some of your most gut-wrenching hard things in life are gonna be from these little bundles of joy that also sometimes are really hard. And then we get the back part of verse 16. I told you right now, this is just like, well, here's heaviness. You're like, where's the joy? It's coming, but right now it's just heaviness, right? It says this, the back part of verse 16, 
and your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. My guess is you didn't drink your coffee out of a coffee cup this morning with that verse on it. Just love this verse. It's so cheery in the morning, right? Like what in the world is this saying? Your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. And so what we, what we have here, and we could spend an entire message, entire series trying to unpack this and the different ways this gets inter- interpreted. Is it meant to be a positive thing? Your, des- you know, your desire shall be for your husband. You know, I think every husband's like, well, I hope I'm somewhat desirable. You know, I mean, okay, that, that, that can be fine and true, but like, that's not what this really is speaking to. What, it, what it's actually getting at, if we see it rightfully in its context, it's like, oh no, this is talking about the brokenness and the fallenness of this world. And that word there, your desire, and it's highlighted, shall be for your husband. That again is another unique word. Friends, one of the best ways to understand the scriptures is to go to the scriptures. And in particular, to go to other verses. And if you can even find like, hey, where does this word show up? And that word there for desire, it shows up in two other places in the Bible. One is spoken of in the Song of Solomon, all right, which really is about a desire between a, uh, you know, a husband and a wife but I don't think given the context, that's what it's really about here. In fact, we just have to go one chapter over and we'll, we'll be in this in the, the weeks ahead as well as when we see the next story. The next big account is the story of Cain and Abel. And you've got, spoiler alert, if you don't know this, Cain murders Abel, right? And the dysfunction that continues to happen, the chaos that continues to reign. And that word desire shows up in Genesis 4, verse 7. Let me just read it to you. This is God warning Cain. He's like, he sees what's going on in Cain's heart. And he's like, hey, pay attention to that. Don't give in to that. Look at how he talks about this desire. It says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's spoken of as like this animal that's ready to pounce. Like it has this power. It's like, hey, you got to resist that. And then it says this, it's desire. This sinful desire that's likened to like this powerful animal. This desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And so if we go back to this and say, that's the same word, that same word there that we see for desire, when it's spoken of like this sin, that's like desiring something that needs to be brought under control. I believe what it's speaking to here is saying, even amongst the male and the female and the husband and wife relationship, there is gonna be this over-desire that the wife will have to want to control her husband. That there will be this desire, not a healthy desire, but a desire, all right, to want to have control, the final say, but it's but the husband's not off the hook here either. Like this goes together, but he shall rule over you. And it's not talking about this good, like ruling together that Genesis 1, 26 and following speaks of, because they were both called to be rulers. This is a heavy handedness. This is the man saying, no, I'm going to, I'm going to rule in an unloving way. This is a man who's gonna then grasp for control and it's gonna create this tension and this divide. Like this is what it's speaking of. And we have seen this play out. You're gonna see it play out in the book of Genesis. And I think if you're honest, if you're somebody that's in a marriage, you would also say like, yeah, this is the reality at times. And it's describing for us, where did this all come from? Where did it originate? And sure, we could nuance the particular ways that that manifests itself, but just in general, this, these are real issues that we face. So what do we do with that? But at this point, listen, it's just saying for us, here's the consequences. Here's where things are at. 
And so again, I don't think we're called to build an entire, I don't think these are positive verses. I don't think you're meant to build an entire theology of like the genders and roles based on this, because this is spoken of in the negative. No, this is not God's design for things. I think there are places in the scriptures that speak to the call of a, of a husband to guard and to protect and to lead and to cherish and do all that. How? Like as Christ loved the church, as he died for his bride, all of that. That's not what this is speaking of. If, so husband, if you hear this as rule over, this for one is not describing things as they should be. This is a heavy handedness that it's speaking of, and but it describes the tension well. And then the man is spoken to. Look with me at verses 17 to 19. We see these last of these pronouncements. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened, not to the voice of God and to his word, but to the voice of your wife, who said, here's this fruit, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground. Adam's not cursed, Eve's not cursed, but cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, and there's our word again, this toil, in pain or toil, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field and by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Do you see what's happening here? Because of the fall, work now becomes toil. Work, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, like work's part of God's good design. There's gonna be work in the new heavens and in the new earth. Some of us are gonna have to figure out other jobs because a lot of us have jobs because there's brokenness in the world, Right? But the truth of the matter is, no, like work is a good thing, but it becomes a pain. It becomes toil. It becomes that grind. It can, becomes the like, oh, somebody's got a case of the Mondays, right? Like it's that thing is because of this. That's what's happening here. And the man can have a propensity to look towards like how work is going to find his identity. And there's just this recognition, no, it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. There is a sad irony in this. The man eats and now his eating is cursed. The man eats the fruit and now his desire to cultivate and grow more fruit and produce and harvest crops, that is cursed. He eats and eating becomes a grind. Eating becomes a struggle. Yes, he's going to produce, but it says he's going to do it. By the sweat of his face, you shall eat bread, all right? And then you're gonna do all of this. You're gonna work the ground until you go back into the ground. Welcome to church, right? Like that's, that's what he's saying. How are we to handle that? Like work becomes toil. And he says, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. We're never meant to find our identity in our work. We're never meant to find our identity in what we seek to acquire. There's a short story, um, perhaps maybe you're familiar uh, with this by Leo Tolstoy, the great Russian novelist. If you're looking for light and cheery, don't go to the Russian novelist, uh, but they got some, some great stuff. And Tolstoy tells this story, uh, it's, it's called, How Much Land Does a Man Need? And in this particular short story, there's this peasant by the name of Pakom. And Pakom is just, he's busy, he's, he's living his life. He's got a little bit of, of land that doesn't even belong to him that he's working. Um, and then his, his wealthier sister-in-law shows up and is talking about life in the city. And he hears all of that. And his wife is like, well, no, we're good here. But there's something in him that just awakens. He's like, I gotta get more land. I gotta make something of my, of my life. And what he is unaware, but the reader is brought into by Tolstoy is there in the room is the devil. 
And the devil begins to put a plan, a scheme together to say, ooh, I'm gonna help him achieve his goals. And bit by bit, as the story is told, Pawcom achieves a little bit of land and then he buys some more and he's able to sell that and buy a greater land. But it's more and more and more and it's never enough. It's Ecclesiastes, right? It's all just seeming like vanity, but he believes the lie. And one day he hears from a fellow traveler that there's this land that it's gonna take a couple of days to travel to. And so he goes with a servant of his and he finds out that there's this great land and it really is this amazing land, all right? And it'll grow a lot of crops and he'll make more money than he ever dreamed of. And he'll have more land than he could ever find around him because he was fairly landlocked where he was. And so he travels out and he meets the head of this, this chief who kind of runs that, that particular area. And he says, okay, well, how much are you selling it for? And the man says, you can have our, our land for a thousand dollars or a thousand rubles a day. It's like, wait, what? No, no, how much is it? What's a thousand rubles a day? He said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, here's how it works for us. You take a spade, you take this little shovel and you go out and in a day's time, as much land as you can mark, you dig a hole, you pile up the, you know, pile up the soil, whatever you can mark off for a thousand rubles, it's yours. And Pacom is like, unbelievable. Like, this is it. This is where I wanna be, right? And so he sets off. And he goes early in the morning and he's marking it out and he's trying to strategize about how he can get back in time. Because if you don't make it back by the time the sun sets, they keep your money and you don't get the land. And as he has gone further out, just again, that draw towards, I need more, I need more. He realized, I don't know if I've got enough time. The sun is starting to set and it's getting late into the afternoon. And he begins to sprint and he sees the sun going down and he can see the chief and the group of people. And it appears as if they're like laughing and dancing and sort of mocking him off in the distance. And it's beginning to, to lower, but finally he has this moment of hope because he realizes like, oh, we're their position with the hill. He's still got a little bit more time because the sun hasn't set for them yet. And so he sprints and he's running as fast as he could after he's marked out just miles and miles of land. And as he makes it there, as he comes there, there's a hat that has his thousand rubles in it. And as he makes it back, just as the sun is going down, the chief welcomes him and says, there's your land. And Pakum collapses to the ground. And as Tolstoy, and only the way a Russian author can, says, he died. And the closing line, his servant picked up the spade and dug a grave long enough for Pakum to lie in and buried in him, him in it. Six feet from his head to his heels was all he needed. How much land does a man need? And there was the answer. There's a heaviness about all of this. There's this, this grind, this weight, this way we get confused thinking, oh, if I just pursue these things, it's going to satisfy and it never does. But I told you in this, with a few minutes we have left, there's hope in this. There's unbelievable hope in this passage. Like there's so much good, good news and it just builds if we have eyes to see it. So look with me back at verses 20 to 22 for just a moment. There's a care that we see from the Lord that says the man called his, his, uh, his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Even that is speaking to some hope that, that Adam has like heard from the Lord and what he's going to do. And he names her Eve and even the naming of her is showing like he believes, okay, there's, she's gonna be the mother of all living. Like things aren't gonna die and terminate here. And then it tells us this in verse 21, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. God sees them with their fig leaves and he sees them with their, their nakedness and their shame. And he doesn't say, hey, take those fig leaves off and off on your own, you go east of Eden to dwell with no clothing, but rather kills an animal and clothes them 
And it's God showcasing for us again, his tenderness, his care, the way he moves toward us, that he's a God who doesn't want us to live in our shame, that he's a God that's gonna make provision for us to have that dealt with. And this isn't in an ultimate sense yet, but the trajectory of the story has been set here. Like this is what God is going to do. And then God, even in his kindness, him removing them from the garden, Yes, it's punishment. Yes, it's consequence, but it's also grace, friend. Verse 22 says this, then the Lord God said, and God almost is as if his thought is sort of cut off here. It says this, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. And then it just sort of trails off. God is like, they've taken from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there's corruption, right? There's death and chaos that has entered in. And what if they would reach for the tree of life? What if they would reach and now be stuck in the state they're in for all of eternity? Like God banishes them, but part of it is his grace toward them, his kindness toward them, because God at the end of the day is making a way for Adam and Eve and for all of us to come home. Like that's the hope that's embedded in this. As hard as these verses are and as honest as they are, and as much as they might explain the difficulty of like what work looks like and relationships with children and spouses and all of all of those things and the reminders in all of that, that we can't find our hope in our kids or in a spouse or in our work, there is actually hope to be found. And that longing that we have, like every single one of us, the good things that we pursue, we're always trying to find that peace and that joy, thinking that thing will ultimately satisfy. It's a longing for home. It's a longing for Eden and home is to be in the presence of God. And so we'll close with this. There is a coming home. And did you notice what God puts as he sets them out outside of the garden? Did you notice, I'll put the words up on the screen, but notice again, at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, so this angelic figure, and then a sword, but it's not just a regular sword, it's a flaming sword. So you've got this angelic being, all right? Lest you try and run back in, you got this angelic being to deal with and not just a, a sword that is there, but it's a flaming sword and it's moving back and forth. So good luck getting back in, right? Like we can't enter back into the presence of God in our shame and with, a, with our sin and our brokenness. But yet that longing has not gone away. Like we want to come home. We're desperate to come home. And so I told you we had to come back to verse 15, even in the curses being pronounced, the back half of it, and theologians, because they like to use big words, will talk about this as the proto-euangelion, which is simply a way to say the first good news, the first gospel, the prototype really of the gospel. It said this, he shall bruise your head. So he speaks of this offspring, speaks of this enmity. All right, it's the people of God versus the enemy of God and his people. And then it goes singular. And it's like, he shall bruise your head that one day there's gonna come one who will crush Satan's sin and death. And yes, you will bruise his heel, but you will not defeat him. And now friends, we think about what the story is, how this set the trajectory, what Jesus came to accomplish and realize in this that, oh, there's a serpent crusher who showed up on the scene and the serpent crusher becomes crushed himself for us. This is why the prophet Isaiah would say, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities for my sin, for my rebellion, for my stupidity, for my shame and for yours and all of it. He was crushed for our iniquities and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds, we are healed. What glorious good news that is, that 
God is making a way that there was a promise in the midst of curses. You get to come home and you're gonna come home because God himself, Jesus himself would leave his home to enter into the mess of this world and to live a sinless life and to be crushed for us. But friends, there's even more to this. There's even more beautiful detail as God has embedded in this so much hope. Remember the cherubim, right? Guarding the way, guarding Eden, guarding where the presence of God is and the flaming sword. Well, God eventually told his people to build a tabernacle and then later a temple, right? And there were particular things about all of that. And even in its design, there was the room that was the Holy of Holies. It's where the sacrifices were made for, to atone for the people's sins. And what's so fascinating is we read the account, let me just read this out of Exodus 36, what separated the Holy of Holies, where the people couldn't go in, where the presence of God was located. He made the veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns. This is where there was this curtain and fine twine linen with cherubim skillfully worked into it. He made it. Do you think this is by accident? Or do you think God said, oh, I put the cherubim outside of Eden to block it. You can't go back in and you can't get into the Holy of Holies because now there's this curtain with the cherubim that sewed into it. And then Jesus is crushed for our iniquities. The serpent crusher goes and is crushed. And it looks like the enemy of God has won as Jesus bleeds out and a sword is put through his side, a flaming sword that should have pierced you and me instead pierces him. And then Matthew tells us in Matthew 27, 51, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. This is no accident. This is the intentionality of our God that all the way back in Genesis three, as the people are being banished, he's saying there's a cherubim and it's guarding it. But one day that place, that separation, that's gonna be split. Jesus is going to die. He's gonna be the serpent crusher. He's gonna die the death you and I deserve. And when it happened, when he said it is finished, the curtain was split from top to bottom. And guess what that symbolizes? We now can come home. We have access to God through the finished work of Jesus. And the question becomes for us, like, will you and I, will we admit our need? And will we believe that for the first time and forever? Like this is where life is found. One quote, one verse, and we're done. D.A. Carson said it this way, Genesis 3 shows what we most need. If you're a Marxist, what you need are revolutionaries and decent economists. If you're a psychologist, what you need is an army of counselors. If you think that the root of all breakdown and disorder is medical, what you really need is large numbers of Mayo Clinics. But if our first and most serious need is to be reconciled to God, a God who now stands over against us and pronounces death upon us because of our willfully chosen rebellion, then what we need the most, though we may have all of these other derivative needs, is to be reconciled to him. We need someone to save us. Genesis 3 tells you the plan of how that would be, and it has come true. And then Paul picks up on this. In Romans 16, as he's closing out one of the greatest letters ever, says this, verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan. But notice he doesn't say under Jesus' feet that that is true. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 
The mission hasn't stopped. The call to expand the garden. You and I walk out of here as redeemed people and that we get to see Satan, sin and death crushed under our feet, not because of our strength and our power, but because we're in Jesus and the Holy Spirit has come to indwell us. Imagine that picture of the church. Like we leave here today crushing Satan under our feet. We go and do our work and love our neighbor and love our kids and engage in all the things that culture has for us. We do it in a way to say, that belongs to God, that belongs to God. This is how we do finances. This is how we do sex. This is how we do relationship. It's all under the rule and reign of God. And everywhere there's a lie, we get to crush Satan under our feet through the spirit of God. Like that's the church. That's what we get to be. And it's all because of what is loaded in here in Genesis chapter three. So friends, let me pray for us. And we're gonna worship this God who's made a way, who's given us this great privilege to still participate with him. Even despite our rebellion and our shame and all the things like it's been paid, there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your kindness and your grace, your mercy. It is abundant. We thank you that it never runs out. Jesus, we thank you for what you've done. Thank you for what you still invite us into. May you work in and through us for your glory and for our deep and lasting and abiding joy, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.